netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to this FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our guest for this episode is Ryan Laney, who on this Friday is going to be honored at the Academy of Motion Picture, Arts and Sciences, Scientific and Technical Awards presentation in Los Angeles. He's receiving an award of commendation for, and I'm quoting here from the Academy, innovative adaptation and deployment of AI-driven facial veiling technology used to protect the identities while preserving the visual relatability of subjects in documentary filmmaking as exemplified in Welcome to Chechnya. Now, those of you who are regular visitors to FX Guide uh, may recognize Ryan's name and the name of that film. Mike actually did an article, an interview with him back in July of 2021. And it talks about the use of AI in that film because the documentary chronicles violence against the LGBT population uh, in the Russian uh, Republic of Chechnya. And they basically used AI tech to mask the identities of the individuals in the film because these individuals could actually be punished under the law in Chechnya. So it's obviously incredibly important to keep their identities a secret. So, you know, if you look at the stuff like deep fakes and so forth, that gets a lot of buzz. But this use, in my opinion, was really quite a lot more interesting than that and a really cool use of the technology. So let's go ahead and cross the interview now. It's Mike Seymour chatting with Ryan Laney. So, Ryan, congratulations. Wow, you've been singled out by the Academy for just being a heck of a nice guy. That's, I'm, I'm just so happy for you. Well, well, thank you. Uh, I am. I could have done a backflip when I got the call. Um, I would not have imagined in a million years I would I would uh, get the accolade, and and um, it's pretty incredible that the Academy considered it and found it worthy. So obviously, people can read the story we did on FX Guide, but just in quick summary, when did you first enter into the world of machine learning? And was the machine learning there and then you found the film or did you find the film and then decide to use machine learning uh, to address the issues of keeping the identity of members of the uh, LGBT community confidential? Um, a little of both. I was looking at machine learning for some data, some interesting data things. Um, I wasn't doing anything with machine learning and images at all. Um, uh, but the the sort of, the fact that I had some familiarity with the ideas involved in machine learning gave me the confidence to, to sort of jump off that cliff. Um, the film was shot and edited, uh, and they were looking for, they had an idea of how they were going to um, uh, hide the identities and it didn't work out. So they were, they were basically had a film that they, they needed to figure out a solution for. So it was really one of those, really rare and unique opportunities to um it was all about finding the solution and and so like what are the options and and uh so in in this sort of mix of uh knowledge of visual effects background with a visual effects background and uh a little bit of machine learning and a lot of like well just problem solving in general um we we settled on we ended up settling on uh, sort of starting down a, a course of style transfer and then kind of refining that into face style transfer. So uh, your background that facilitated you being able to do this in the first place, like um, I don't want to do your entire life story, but like how did you come to be in a position, like what was the background that and the work that you'd done previously that led you to be 
Because it's not like you can just say one morning, hey, I'm going to learn this new machine learning thing. Because for a start, and we'll get into this in a minute, it's not one thing, right? It's a bunch of things. Um, but yeah, what was the background that, that led you there in terms of uh, just feeling comfortable in the art? Uh, working with great teams for 30 years, 25, 30 years. Um, really, I, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you spend, um, you know, all these time, all this time honing your skills for when the opportunity comes to do something unique, I guess. Um, I, I've worked with some incredible teams at some incredible facilities. And through those experience, I um, became even more comfortable with problem solving. Like we don't know every, every production, uh, visual effects production starts with, we want to do something we've never seen before. Okay, let's go. Um, and so you, you look at the requirements and you look at how um, you go, uh, uh, what are the constraints, what are the requirements? And, uh, and then within that, the space that's left over, you kind of sort of start an exploration and you just take a step and see if that works out or not. And then you take another step. And it took us about um, two months of, of uh, exploration to settle on where we did. So it wasn't just like, oh, we had this idea and it's going to work. And, you know, um, we did try uh, a couple of things and we went back to David France and Alice Henty at, at Public Square Films and said, hey, you know, are we solving the right problem? Um, and then and then so it was really it was really going back to the question of what how did I get the skills to solve this particular problem? Um, it's the skill of problem solving that I learned from working with good problem solvers. That's probably a more simple answer. Because the reason I ask that is for somebody that's listening to this, that's, you know, partly because of your work, become aware of the power in the tools that are driven by machine learning. And I'm using the term machine learning instead of AI, because I think AI has a lot more baggage with it in terms of, uh, you know, general public perception. For somebody listening and thinking, well, yeah, I'm really aware now that this is an amazing area. Uh, there's a concern, I think, about the transferability of their skills from what might be a compositing or 3D background into this area. It seems like a big jump, but I'm hearing from you that you feel like that's a path that many artists could could walk down. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so first of all, uh, I mean, every artist tool today is node-based. It's a, every artist tool today is a graph and these neural networks are graphs. And, and so there's a there's some logic to uh, from the basis of how do you build a Maya scene graph? How do you build a Houdini scene graph? How do you build a uh, Nuke scene graph? There's so there's some sort of logic of layering. You're doing things in those layers in between. Now you can't necessarily go in and edit uh, uh, something like that, but it does. It does. It might give uh, some people, especially more uh, on the technical end of things. Um, you know, a leg up to anybody who's just coming into machine learning fresh. Um, uh, that was at least uh, my my experience with it is that uh, I was able to understand uh, the ideas of these, you know, invisible layers in between by by thinking of them as as uh, uh, in the context which I which I was familiar. Now it's a, it is a different once you get in there. But, uh, but that got me into uh, uh, maybe a little overconfidence into jumping, again, jumping off in, into, uh, into the pool. 
So I just want to clear one thing up for those people that are listening. You speak a lot about us and we, and I know that you were entirely working on your own, but most of the work on the film, Welcome to Chetnia, was you, right? Like I was stunned when we first spoke back in the day about this, just how much you were doing the heavy lifting yourself. So this wasn't a 20-person team, was it? Uh, yeah, the, the all the machine learning stuff almost entirely was was was. Uh, I have a hard time saying me. I know, I, or I know you do, but that. just so for the record, I, I don't mind yeah. if you use we for the rest of this conversation. It's, but it's, just for people listening, this is Ryan <laughs> just being modest. Okay, so, the, so the other thing about that, my mom, you would say, this was done. Welcome to Chetney came out twenty twenty. Yeah, so this is like now effectively three years mm -hmm. ago. Especially when you allow for the fact that you didn't. You did the work before it came out. Um, give us a quick pricey of the tools that you were using for that film, and then I'm going to catch us up with what you've been doing since then. But as the, um, and I'm just reading it now, as the award is literally for the innovative adaption and development of AI-driven facial veiling technology um, uh, to preserve identities, et cetera, in the documentary Welcome to Chetnia, um, I want to start there. And, of course, as we just touched on it's veiling technology to protect the identities it's not uh deep fakes to make somebody look like somebody else or any of that stuff it's protecting identities in a documentary sense which was uh, and i hope still is uh your passion but go to 2020 or that period leading up to it what were the texts that you were basically using and then we'll see how much has changed since then uh 2018 was when we got started when we first got the call uh david and alice had been looking for six months to a year on, on um, sort of trying different uh, scanner darkly or aha music video kind of uh, overlay effects where they were having artists literally drawn frames and they were trying uh, cartoon filters and things like that. And, uh, and, and, and so that's, that was 2018, that's what we started with. Um, and it was a whole body effect. Um, so, uh, our first idea was, and I, and I credit Johnny Hahn with this, um, who was a visual effects producer, and he's actually the one that put us together. Uh, and Johnny called me up one day and said, uh, hey, I know you like to solve problems. Here's, here's an interesting one. Can you, can you hide somebody's identity so well that their parents wouldn't recognize them? Um, so uh, the first round was style transfer. Um, and this was... Uh, it was right after CES or some trade show. Maybe it wasn't CES. It was right after a trade show where Johnny had seen some uh, sort of real-time uh, style transfer neural networks. Um, and so uh, Python, uh, I think the first model I tried was a cafe model. I tried, you know, some PyTorch models. I ended up uh, going with uh, TensorFlow because some of the requirements I needed. But um, really, it was uh, uh, for Welcome to Chechnya, it was uh, uh, Python bash scripting, uh, uh, TensorFlow uh, libraries, and then uh, OpenCV. Um, uh, I think I was trying to think. Of, oh, and then all of this, I should say, you know, I, I, it's really important that there is a foundation within visual effects. That's the visual effects reference platform, that's OpenEXR. Uh, Ace's color encoding, like um, the the there's a real benefit to all of the work that the industry has done to standardize some of the language and tools that we use throughout the process. Um, 
And so, uh, uh, I mean, that's that's really the foundation is 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 because we're kind of as an industry working together to make this ship upright most of the time um, yep. that we can just jump in and 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 get like you start it you're starting at the conversation at step six instead of like oh well how, how are we going to move images around or how you know so um i i touched on this earlier it isn't one thing this isn't like um your award of accommodation or the special plaque you're getting um can be read as if you invented a new widget or a new you know, node or a new thing, but that isn't the case because you are using these techniques of machine learning and stuff at various points along the the process of being able to produce the veiling effect. So, for example, I would draw as the example the work you did in curating the training data set so that you had the most appropriate training data to use for any one shot. And I think these are things that are often overlooked. People think that it's like a button or a piece of software, or even that you just get more data is good and more data isn't necessarily good. And I'm reminded of an anecdote you told me, I don't know if you remember telling me this, about how um, you were getting training data from the multiple cameras you had around the actors, but you couldn't sync the cameras, so you let them all just run. And you were telling me, and this is a few years ago now, that the actors kept on looking to their side because that's where you were to talk to you. And of course, if you looked at the body of work and just at a statistical level, that meant you always saw one side of their face a lot more because they're always looking over to the side where you were. Do you remember me telling telling me that story? Yeah. Am I yeah, yeah. anecdotally was, re- recounting just, that correctly? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it was uh, uh, the thing the, the, where we noticed it was actually eyeline. Um, right. That we had a lot of data of eyes looking at in a specific, uh, specific way. And, and that was that actually ended up being one of the sort of uh, uh, situations that caused us to innovate in a, in a different way when when parsing the 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 giant pool of uh, I think we had eight terabytes of face data in that first set. Um, so um, the data the data acquisition was inspired by uh, Paul DeBevick's work. Like everything we did is really inspired by something else we've come across in the last you know. 20 or 30 years. And, and, um, so, you know, we, we couldn't, we couldn't get a, a light stage, uh, in New York and, and, uh, I'm not sure if we could afford it anyway, but, uh, um, uh, we, uh, we, we were familiar with that process and we were familiar with the idea of, of capturing face data and the, the complexity of trying to capture every sort of light camera incidents angle. Right. So if, um, so we did, we did a, a reduced set. We did nine cameras instead of, you know, we didn't necessarily need a full full head. Uh, and we didn't need every uh, lighting angle. So we hired a lighting crew and and uh, and really just got the lighting scenarios that we needed and, and a range around the general idea of the face angles that we needed. Um, uh, we had people speak through a phonetic pangram to get all the lip shapes. And then, um, and that was our data set. So to the to what you're talking about with the uh, the bias in the data set, um, and by this we, we mean positional and and uh, sort of content bias, not necessarily uh, you know personalized bias. Um, well, we ended up going through. So our system, uh, starting with Welcome Chechnya, uh, looks at every frame in the film that needs to be covered, and uh, encodes the face to try to capture information about what's going on in the frame. 
So that's eye line, that's expression, that's face angle, that's lighting. And then goes to the data set and tries to find matches. So rather than using a generic, just a data set of you know, a billion faces, we're using, we're starting with only the faces that are close in the parameters that we specify. And that, that really, what we found that paying attention is the more attention we pay to data preparation, the less work the machine, the, the neural network needed to do. Yeah. And so my example of bringing this, or reason bringing this up is that <clears throat> what you're basically doing is you're using a, a different type of completely separate machine learning solution to basically go through your eight terabytes to find the appropriate training data. So you're using machine learning to curate your training data for your machine learning. And I guess this is just a really good example to me of like, what we're talking about here and the work that you did then wasn't just one thing. It was like a whole lot of different yeah. applications yeah, yeah, of the yeah. technology. Um, so yeah, yeah. Pipeline. And actually just to sort of give you a little extra color on that is it's a machine learning model to identify a face, a different machine learning model to sort of normalize that face in color shape space. And then a third machine model to match the, to set the uh, the uh, subject, the contributor in the film, and the face double. So that so just that section was three 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 models. Three yeah. Models. Okay. So that brings us to the actual issue of the veiling. And you said in a minute ago, you've you've obviously answered this question before. Like, uh, why isn't it a deep fake? You said you had three reasons why it isn't a deep fake. I mean, there's like, there's probably 20 that I could come up with, but, but the, the, uh, the, fir the first reason, the, the biggest reason is a philosophical reason is that deepfakes are inherently non-consensual. They, you know, the, the people who produce these things, they, they don't ask the, the, the person underneath, they don't ask the person who's being, whose face is being used and they, and they, they present it in a way to, to fool the audience. So they've, they've sort of, by contrast, we've, we're very careful about the ethics of this and that is there's a disclaimer on every film we've worked on we put in a, a halo that ties it to the visual language of the blurry oval but also is like an appearance um so there's an open um dialogue in in the sort of visual language um and then the the contributor uh, knows that they're going to be covered and the double knows that they are going to cover and that they're going to be the sort of human shield, so to speak, in this in the situation. So that's the philosophically is the 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 biggest reason. Um, uh, technically, our our pipeline is a visual effects pipeline, and we have um, it's a production mindset. So every um, step along the way has a handle for an artist to go in and make an edit if they need to. Um, and this is something that's critical. Um, uh, when you're talking about something that's going to go to film, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be solid. It's got to be, everything's got to track well. Um, that, and then the integration has to be well, it, it plugs back into a compositing pipeline. So uh, an artist can, sometimes that artist, most of the time the artist is me, but um, an artist can go in and, um, uh, you know, match the grain, make sure the levels are correct, match it. So there's a, there's a whole level of, of quality assurance at every step along the way that allows, uh, I mean, we were talking about the, the original data sets, even the original face tracking that the, we use a model to do the tracking, but we also have a handle for editing that tracking if we need to. 
Yeah, as you probably know, we did the um, the champion, uh, which was doing neural rendering or facial reenactment to Bru- change language. Brilliant by the way. Yeah, thank yeah. you, man. Yeah, yeah. But the th- I, the reason I brought that up is uh, the issue of respect, um, and I'm sure you'd agree with this. The point that I make often about that is that if somebody's doing subtitles on a film and they're bad, then you kind of think they're odd, right? Like that's not a good translation of the language. And if somebody does bad dubbing, it's funny, right? Like there are films like Wayne's World that are mocked, you know, dubbing because it's just funny watching people's lips move and the the, the audio's wrong. It's just, you know, uh, for many of us, it was Kung Fu movies back in the day, right? Like we just, it's just funny. It's yeah, wrong. Yeah. But if you do facial reenactment incorrectly, you don't think that it's odd. You don't think that it's funny. You think that the actor can't act. Um, and that's a huge difference. And so the need for respect is paramount. And I think the same applies, though obviously you're, in your case it's slightly different because you're doing, uh, or significantly different because you're doing a veiling effect. But if you lose the authenticity of the documentary uh, delivery or capture that has happened when the actual uh, victims, in your case, of the um, situation are portraying their story, and thus it looks insincere or whatever to the audience when I see it through the veil, then it's just lacking respect to both the subject matter and the individuals. And I think it's obviously different tech, uh, same kind of general area. But this idea of respect is one that I don't think is discussed enough when talking about facial reenactment. I'm, I'm sure you'd agree. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, um, uh, you know, coming from a, a 3D background, I've seen uh, quite a lot of attempts at, at getting good 3D motion. Um, and, and, and it's hard when you're creating a, a you know, a, um, uh, when you're synthesizing an image that's motion is based on another image. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. And, and the, um, we did a lot to synchronize. Uh, there's actually a, a component where um, our, before style, style transfer was was the idea, but the first thing we pitched to, to David and Alice were, was this idea of uh, uh, changing face uh, structure, and that's and by that I mean changing the skull underneath the skin. Um, and we, there was some work out of the University of Glasgow on um, uh, attractiveness, I think was it was the study, and it it. Uh, uh, but they they produced they published this this image of a grid of people from around the world, world and it was like I don't know thirty or fifty countries and it was people from every from every country composites of which made which ended up making an average sort of like of that region and um, and we realized that the, the deltas like basically the difference between any two people on that chart were pretty small like the you know the the facial geometry but they all looked very different and so. Um, so we, uh, in addition to the sort of the, the face style that we're transferring, we're also changing the bones. And the reason I mentioned that is because, um, uh, you're talking about the, the authenticity of the original footage and, and, uh, we do a lot to, to basically overlay a face that is different in a way that, uh, we, we we have a, a neutral sort of third space that's not either face. And we use that to align faces so that we can get this incredibly high fidelity motion transfer. And that motion transfer is the thing that picks up the micro expressions. And it's the thing that picks up the, the, 
the original intent of the facial, uh, the, the emotion that's coming through in the face. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you, you said motion, but I would say it's an emotion transfer, right? Like it's, it's the emotional yeah, connection. Because yeah. like that's yeah, I mean, the thing. Data sets, my data sets are sort of emotionless. And that's one of the reasons we feel like we've decoupled, uh, you know, emotion from, from picture and the, and the, um, are you talking about a latent uh, space in the, in the machine learning process when you're saying that, or are you no, talking no, about no, conceptual it's, it's space? A, it's an image space. Okay. It's an image space. It's, but it's a, it's a intermediate so that we have basically, if you, um, the way, the way the sort of common models work is they're a contrastive loss, which means if you overlay one face on the other, and you do a contrastive loss, you're going to end up getting a, what's called a identity bleed because the faces will start to align. And basically, since you're trying to, you've got your double and you're aligning it to the original and you're measuring on that, did I, did I hit the original? You end up getting an identity bleed because your double, your face double starts to look like, take on the geometry of the person you're trying to hide. And that's just not, you know, that's not something you can do. So um, uh, it would give you uh, an authentic representation, but it might also reveal some of the original person's identity. So, yeah. um, so by, by, you know, this, this idea that we're also, um, sort of aligning the spaces in this third space, we've, we're able to, um, get that high fidelity without moving, without losing the safety of the identity veil. Yeah. I mean, it's a, does that make sense? No, no, absolutely. I, I didn't but the say thing that is, very well at all. No, no, I understand what you're saying because like what we want <laughs> is to no, I and I know exactly what you're saying. Like sometimes well, I, I will actually go so far as to say I can see Andy Circus in Caesar um because they've gotten so good at matching Andy's performance through in the character Caesar and Planet of the Apes that there's almost you can tell that it's Andy Circus because it's just the faces have got that, as you say, sort of almost leakage. And of course, if you're trying to produce a veil to hide identity, that's the last thing in the world you want someone to be able to guess who that person was. But by the same token, um, it's terribly moving when you watch uh, your work and you, because they're very real, very raw emotions. And to build on your point about the sort of subtleties of faces that let you identify both being very different, but obviously geometrically uh, tiny. The, the ability to actually recognize faces is such a neurally developed feature of our actual brains. The fact that we can see faces in clouds, et cetera, means that like it's so subtle, but um, yeah, you're, you're playing on a knife's edge because if you take away too much, then it isn't a moving performance. Like these, these actors uh, that I'm dealing with, uh, if they're good, if they're method actor type things can invoke uh, facial expressions that are authentic, but in your case, they're not acting. They're, they're they're documentaries, and so if somebody is genuinely looking happy, genuinely looking sad, they're firing muscles in their face and they're doing things that a method actor wishes on their best day that they could do. So if you lose that, you lose what makes it so powerful. So you're trying to veil and not lose the emotion. So I guess I mean that's obviously where yeah, you deserve yeah. an Academy yeah, Award. No, to, to 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 your point though, I think the um, the it does carry the emotion, but it's not the emotion that we're transferring. I guess it's just a subtlety, you know. Yeah. It, it, the 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 movement, the micro expressions in the face, because we are as humans so incredibly tuned into reading people's faces to understand what they mean and how they feel when they say something. 
um, uh, that it's it is those those really tiny um, movements and the the change in faces like if 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 you if you get a subtle smirk like a very like just a twitch in the corner of your mouth you know people will will see that that you know as a happy as a happy thought so um uh it's 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 those mi micro expressions and the and the really subtle motion in the face that we're transferring and that comes through as the original person's emotion even though we're not actually like transferring emotion onto them Okay, so we were discussing what you were using in 2018 for a film that came out in 2020, and you were discussing like uh, using TensorFlow and uh, a bit of PyTorch and Python hacking and stuff. So I'd like to know what you've been doing since then, and then if we can, after that, we'll go into what tools you're using to pull it off. But since that film, uh, Chetney, came out and obviously gathered a lot of attention internationally, what have you actually been working on in terms of projects? So the projects uh, have all been... Uh face veiling so uh, so once we realized the value of what we we're working on um it was it was wasn't something that i could step away from you know you, and it's um as much as i love visual effects and love working on the big blockbuster films uh this feels really important and um i actually turned down a couple of <laughs> pretty good opportunities um and with the basically saying I can't leave this until other companies are doing it because it's a service that is needed in the world. So, um, so we, we, it feels good to me uh, just to be able to, to uh, uh, be doing good in the world in this sort of way and helping, yeah. um, you know, filmmaking is this incredible tool of, of uh, storytelling that communicates ideas efficiently. So, um, so yeah, there's that. So the projects in last year, um, the last two projects, obviously we, we have stuff in progress now, but um, uh, the last two projects are pretty interesting for different reasons. One um, was uh, a BBC series, uh, two-part series called um, Hong Kong, Inside Hong Kong's Fight for Freedom. Um, and it was interviews with, with uh, students who were part of the Hong Kong uh, pro-democracy protests. Uh, and for obvious reasons, uh, like Welcome to Chechnya, um, they don't want to be identified by their government because of, you know, what happens. So, um, so really interesting stories, uh, really great to be able to give a voice to these people like Welcome to Chechnya, who otherwise wouldn't be able to have a voice. Um, and then the other in really interesting project from last year was um, Into the Deep. Uh, and it was about... Um, uh, Emma Sullivan uh, was on location uh, filming a documentary about uh, a submarine, uh, sorry, um, a space program. Uh, and while she was there filming, there was a murder. Um, and she was uh, ground zero day one. Uh, and there's this really incredible uh, feedback from the people who knew this person well. The, the murderer um, uh, who knew him well. And, and you, she takes you on this journey as they realize how sort of like intimately close they were with this person who had done this terrible thing. So um, <clears throat> one of the witnesses um, was very concerned about what the publicity would do to her. And, and, um, 
and what what happens to people um, uh, when somebody becomes super famous overnight. Uh, yeah. And luckily, the the producer of the film was uh, Meta Heidi, and she was involved with uh, Amanda Knox uh, documentary, um, and uh, sort of had some firsthand experience with with uh, kind of what what that does in someone's life. So so in this case, we were actually protecting um, the contributor in that case from uh, from the public, which seemed which was really interesting, uh, and I, I think just as valuable because uh, why shouldn't some why should somebody need to be famous in order to tell their story? Like, no, not everybody wants to be famous. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And especially like them and for that matter, their family, right? I mean, if you've got kids and stuff, you just, you know, it's really, uh, I could totally see that. So both cases, the the work you're doing with the protesters and that work um, is in the same category of important documentary work. Can I jump now beneath that and say, what are the tools you're using today on projects such as those? Not specifically those, but just generally what's the toolbox now and how has it changed since uh, it must have changed a lot in the last three years? It surprisingly hasn't. Um, so, so it's the same. Um, we did a good job of it. Like this just says we did a good job at the first round. Um, I did overthink it and, and the, the benefit of, you know, working on large productions where you're pushing you know, a thousand or two thousand shots through our production, it makes you think about the pipeline. So, so I, I was very careful about the pipeline. Um, I have probably swapped out every component along the way, um, and it is built in a very, very modular way where, where we can use best of class. So, I've, I've changed, like, oh, well, if I change the network neural network in this way, do, do I get a better result? Yes. Okay. Well, I'll keep the new one. Um, uh, if I if I use um, you know, this library for reading and writing EXRs performs a little better and I can get, you know, three frames a second instead of one frame a second. And well, uh, okay, that's a, you know, that's an improvement. So, so uh, it is generally the same idea. Um, we are doing generally the same things. We've gotten, we've swapped out the networks for face tracking to get um, uh, a tighter tracks with more, more robust, um, uh, mo almost every, all the neural networks, especially when you talk to the faces, they, they sort of like, they, they expect the typical um, scenario. And with faces, that's facing, it's the interview facing shot, to, right? It's a selfie facing shot. Facing the camera, right? evenly lit. Yeah. yeah, no. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well. so you, you go to, you go to profile and, and uh, you know, things start to fall apart. So we, we've, we've made improvements in those sort of incremental ways of like, okay, here's where we're having to do a lot of, uh, time and attention just to get a good track or well, let's solve that or here's a here's a place where we're in the composite where we're um you know spending more time so let's make a better template or you know so it's, it's those those are the kinds of of uh, incremental changes that we've, we've been making we're uh we're no more cafe no more PyTorch. almost everything's in, in uh tensorflow at this point not not because it's it's a it's a it's a good tool like um I, 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 nothing against the other uh, libraries. It's just easier to, we've got so many languages in so many places. <laughs> we just have to simplify sometimes and use, you know, use one tool. So we're not, yeah, I, you know. Yeah, I definitely, I think PyTorch is good, but not necessarily the only way to, to go forward. That's for sure. TensorFlow is excellent. Um, to, before we get into some more software, like uh, hardware must have, I mean, what what's your kind of go-to 
Oh yeah. So so hardware. So we so the the um uh I think the wealth of Chechnya was we're using like twenty seventy uh Nvidia twenty seventies. Um, uh, we've got a four thousand, a five thousands now. So the the diff the reason why we we upgraded to the the more expensive GPUs. Obviously, there's more throughput, but there's there's a more power efficiency. We had to upgrade for Welcome Chester. We had to upgrade the building's power twice just to get through the project. <laughs> so we kept we kept blowing things. So uh, uh, so there was that. Uh, but the the benefit of the uh, I mean Nvidia's um, the, the their models there there there's some things when it, when you sort of lay out all of their cards there's some things that are very linear. <laughs> Um, uh, so we, we were basically looking for kind of like a, a, a low, a low wattage or, you know, basically a reasonable performance per watt. Um, does the, so, does the 48 gig factor in or 24 gig on the card? Like, I mean, cause back when you were using, yeah. you would have had less on the card. Yeah. I think, I think the first cards we had had six gigs on them or something like that. So Which seems uh, absurd by today's standards. Yeah, doesn't it? Doesn't, well, I mean that. So that forces, uh, you know, being having an unlimited budget doesn't make you better. It just makes you, you know, use use the budget, right? So, so I think I think we had to be more innovative uh, in that first situation because so so there's there's cases, um, uh, you know, harking back to deep fakes. Deep fakes at the time were sixty four pixels square. Um, that we started the, when we started Welcome Chechnya, that was the that was the, and it was from lip to brow, so it was this tight crop inside the face, and it was sixty four pixels, and and so we had we had to get you know higher higher thing, and we in memories of you know an issue, so how do you how do you expand that? And we basically broke it out into a downsampling um, network, a downsampling and upsampling network, um, and then the the sort of in between what was the, 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 the important transfer and the motion and face expressions across. Um, but then we, because we didn't have the memory, we created this sort of outer network that we stacked on, on. And so we could do, we basically did it in two steps instead of one step. And we were able to get a higher fidelity picture, which today, I mean, we can do better today than we could in, in one, model today than we could then but um uh i i think that i think that if we had tried if we had the memory it would have taken too long to solve the model right because because if we see yeah. we, if we if we jammed all that into one i don't i don't, I don't know that, i don't know that we would have said oh we can do this because it would have just taken too long to solve the model. but the other thing back then is that a lot of that stuff was running 8-bit right it wasn't 16-bit and you were talking about an aces workflow and open exrs but I mean, the stuff that was around there was only yeah, 8 bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the, ages ago, uh, in visual effects was eight bit. So, so there's 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 ways that you can structure the data so that you don't have the loss. Well, and you use the right the eight bits. Used yeah. to be the anecdote, <laughs> use right? The right eight, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not just use any eight bits. But having said that, though, yeah. in documentary footage, and I am not referring to any specific footage of yours, but like obviously you do get vast differences in light, including low light conditions and whatever. And uh, so it begs the question, what is the documentary stuff being grabbed at? Is that like, in other words, if you're just getting, uh, I don't know, uh, 
H two six four, right? Um, uh, if you're just getting four two two eight bit footage, it's not much, you know. Obviously, you want a bigger computational space to do the equations in. But you know, if you've only got eight bits going in, you're not going to have that dynamic range in the first place. Is the stuff that you're getting from the documentarians today, you know, basically, I don't know, raw? Is it four K? Is it two K? The the projects that have been planned, they come to us before they shoot. Um, you know, those those are those are generally like interview proper interview with a with a good camera on sticks. And um, but uh, some of the stuff that is like, oh, we have this film and we can't release it, like Well in Chechnya and and uh, Into the Deep. It was uh, in our faces from from twenty twenty one. That stuff comes in just however it comes in. You know, it's it's on Chechnya had. Uh, you know, pocket iPhone and, and uh, hidden cameras. And, and uh, yeah, it was, it was all over the place. The, the compression was, there were compression artifacts. There was heavy grain and the heavy grain, I got to tell you was the, was the most surprising issue because it, it, it confused the trackers. It confused optical flow. It confused, um, uh, the, it, it, the, the grain caused the, the neural network to see micro expressions where there were not, right? So, um, so the I, one of the one of the shots came through, and the person's face was just looked like they were having a a, a problem. So, um, so yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, using the right right the right information in the right places and is uh, is really critical. And then we're pretty robust at this point. There's not. I don't know if there's been in the last year that we've seen, and I don't want to throw a gauntlet out there that somebody throws something at us that we don't, we don't want, but I don't know that we've seen something in the last year that we haven't seen before. Like it's, 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 but are you uh, getting 4k or are you getting higher than 4k? Yeah, Cause no, I imagine. No, we're, yeah. There's the project we're working on now is, uh, is a, it's a uh, anamorphic 8k. So uh, it's a uh, anamorphic it 8k. Wow. It was shot. It was shot 4k. So it's a, uh, you know, two, two, three, five or right. Or two, three, nine or, or something, but it's um, uh, basically a, uh, they shot it um, 4K and then unsqueezed it, and then we got the unsqueezed well, those, those uh A5000s must be running for what, like eight or 12 hours doing training on uh, on those models. That's not, that's going to take a bit of crunching, isn't it? Oh, no, I mean, the uh, so we have a, we have a normalized, we don't necessarily do everything yet. So the, so the model that we're using we normalize faces, so everything that goes in is at least predictable when it goes through the through the matching pipeline. But uh, I mean, and then we use the compositing to go in and out of whatever format we're doing. Yeah, so but I mean, if, if we you've using, got a close up in a documentary, the face is occupying a lot of that four K frame, so that's a lot. Yeah, of, yeah. You know, what yeah, I'm no, we've got we've got the current project has some, uh, you know, uh, the forehead's out of frame. It's that close, yeah. so. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, this is where our, the, the sort of model where we can take, uh, uh, the inferred face and, and pipe it through like this other network knows what an inferred face looks like. And sort of it's the, the look of the pixels in that sort of a type of image and then opera upscale it, uh, trained against the original doubles face so we've got we've got does that make sense uh, yeah yeah we just so we so our 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 expensive inferring 
definitely runs more than a couple of days. Like it, it, we might run for a week to get the, to get the per shot, right? Uh, sorry, uh, per contributor. And then we might run an extra day kind of per shot. So we do, we do, we do, we, do, we, we over train on every sequence and then often we overtrain on every shot. To be so, clear, do you actually mean overtrain or do you mean train a lot? Like overtraining being a sort of a term in machine I learning. I mean overtrain, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no we uh, th- that was one of the first things we realized is that like all this um, general computing, the the models that are being used in the world want to be generic and we don't want to be generic. We want to be very specific. And so we train generally on a whole data set for the show and then we go into a sequence and we train more and we take out uh, any, any sort of dropouts or anything, anything that would make it generic. We take that out of, of the, uh, the network. And then, and then when you get to the shot level, it's really just, there's no test train split. It's all frames that are in the film yeah. and it's all, and it's all data set that match those frames that are in the film and it's find me the best fit. And I don't care if you overfit. Okay. I want you to overfit, right? So when you've been talking, uh, and it's been really informative, you've mentioned a few things like um, up-raising and stuff and face tracking. So in the case of, I don't mean, are you using like super res? Like are you using a particular published face tracking? I mean, obviously you're not trying to sell tech, so you'd be using whatever's the best algorithms that are kind of published. But I'm just wondering how much you just, uh, this modular thing, you say, oh, there's a particular face tracking approach we're going to use because yeah it's been absolutely. published and it's good no and yeah. that's 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 really like the the video effects pi- pipeline idea is that we any of any component along the way we can say oh there's something better this week let's try to let's try it out let's just take that and so um uh the i think i think the last round of tracking was google's media pipe and then we and then we translate from we have a, a little we, we've sort of versioned our sort of pipeline component so like well okay this is you know this is a23 and, and it's got to work with last year's a22 so um here's the conversion from 23 to 22. um so yeah uh we we, we do we, we're looking for best of class uh in the in the the the, the modularity of the pipeline end to end is really kind of the power in it. Um, and, and another thing that I don't know if it's interesting to you or not, but um, uh, we really are interested in greedy sentinels. Um, so, so the processes are set up, uh, they were inspired by kind of a microservice architecture, but, but the processes that set up where I just say, look for rendered frames on disk. If the shot's not rendering, and it has frames on disk. It's rendered, and so make a movie and send it to dailies. I don't. Uh, there's not like I don't have to go into each shot and type dailies and type a slate and do you know. So I'll, I'll try to remove the RSI from the system. I was going to ask you creating... whether you're using something like an F track or something for just running all these things through, uh, because you mentioned this earlier, and, and we didn't get to mention to focus on it at the time. But you listed one of the things as that it's a production process. And I, I really want to underline the difference between anyone can, not anyone, but most people that are in the industry can come up with a good test or a good demo piece 
or a good thing which you know they handcrafted and it took 10 hours a frame of handcrafting it's a completely different thing to be able to process 600 1000 shots in a you know sensible production time frame and deliver those shots uh, back into the rest of the film production and have unity so that it one in is one out and that the color space doesn't vary and that you know like there isn't a one pixel shift etc cetera, etc cetera. like all of that is kind of glossed over but it's a big difference between hey look at this amazing one shot i pulled off with some test software and hey can you tackle a thousand shots and turn them around in three six months actually how long does it take you to turn around a film roughly uh well it's getting better um uh right now we're at right around um uh a month or two for about 10 to 20 minutes worth of film uh footage um which is a a lot and and um a lot of visual effects for face replacement, but it's a, we feel like it's a pretty good pace considering that we've got all this sort of training Um, in surprisingly, like ingesting footage, transferring files. Like those are our, our big bottlenecks right now. And the training of course, but, uh, but we, we, we find. Once we get footage, we take, we can turn a film around in like say three months. When I say once we get footage, because the process of filming the actors in our case um, in your case, well, I guess they're actors too, right? The, for the veils, but like that process is kind of a separate bump compared to the machine learning, if you know what I mean. Like just getting those people coordinated and and you know hiring and all yeah, that stuff is yeah. a separate problem. <laughs> it's not the yeah, same problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah and we realized uh, we, uh, the first project we did after Welcome Justin, we realized how much effort went into uh, shooting the data acquisition. Yeah. So we've we've created a, a template that we give to productions, and we're like. If you're there and you can have your double sit in the same chair with the same lighting, do it. And and so we've we've been lucky enough to be able to get wow. some sort of like same same lighting setup. So we're we're getting a really tight pairing, and this this just goes to like our interest in in getting uh, as close before we start training with everything, so that we we um uh, uh in that lighting that lighting when we get that that lighting does seem to help give us a um you know, uh, at least our lighting's not different when the new face goes on. Yeah. I mean, the process should account for lighting, mathematically speaking, uh, but I, uh, curating the data set is such an art in of itself, right? Yeah. You know, there's some some really great work. Um, uh, Paul's uh, work at Google, I, I think, is available now, and I, I really want to get into inferring the lighting from the original frame and then using that so we're, we're using some simple sort of like gradient matching for our light lookup right now um the forehead's a great great clue forehead and cheeks are great clues the uh um, the uh human but, uh but gray ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we all yeah. pulled the bevic a, a huge uh, dead you know it's not super robust yeah true <laughs> so so in the last few minutes that we have, and, uh, and I really appreciate your time, I'd love to get your opinion just as an expert in the field uh, on some of the exciting stuff that's been happening with um, things like, now it's not directly to what you're doing, of course, this is speculating outside your uh, area of veils, but um, stable diffusion um, and the things that have been happening with ChatGPT and, and just the things that have been happening generally that have caused the general population to suddenly sort of sit up and suddenly say, wow, this AI stuff is not as odd or as uncreative as we thought it was going to be. 
What, what are your thoughts on what we've seen in the last sort of six months? Um, I think it's interesting that the general public is being informed because I think that AI models, uh, neural networks for sure, um, and these sort of uh, general intelligence models are have been in use for longer than you know we probably know. <laughs> so, so there's that, um, and then um, uh, where where is it going to go, or like what? Well, what? I guess it's. I, I personally agree with you. I think one of the things that comes up a lot, uh, as I'm sure you get, is this sort of ethical issue about you know pulling the wool over the eyes of, eyes of the public with. And a lot of that, of course, is directed at uh, deep fakes, not your work. But having said that, an informed public is the best defense we have against bad actors using this technology in the broader sense against a community. And so I'm all in favor of an informed public. I think that's just a brilliant thing. I know you've done a lot of lecturing and, and talking about your work. Yeah, no, I think I, I, uh, I completely agree about an informed public. I think that the, the, the risk um is uh, not that we want to go too far down this but the risk is using people bad actors who will use the ai to misinform the public and uh and the the conversation about deep fakes is really interesting because it's a it's a thing that it's a lightning rod that people can point to but they're not looking at all the ways that non-ai actors are misinforming the public and i think that i think that maybe you you know the the conversation about the fix helps people understand that there are people who will misuse information or use information or use misinformation to to seek power or gain whatever advantage they they want so so yeah i think i think it's i, I love the idea that that by the by chat gpt hitting the 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 sort of public view uh, we're able to have the conversation and able to have this idea that, well, it doesn't need to be an AI in order to misinform or, or, or whatever. So, um, uh, but on the bright side, like I, I love the idea of being able to access all written human knowledge in a keystroke. Like that is right. It, it just, it blows my mind to, to just imagine having um having this layer in between you and the sea of information that is out there and, and say hey i want to know this language model hey i want to know about this thing tell me the history of something or tell me how we got to this position or give me the give, give me like go out and find oh we already have it right infer to me the what what it, what what this means in the context of, you know, whatever. Yeah. So that, that just to me is just really um, incredible to think about the, the power we could have if we're able to use it like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's beholden more than ever for the individual to stay current and you can in an astonishing way, but look, yeah, the pace of it. I mean, back in the day when I was starting out, you would learn every year when SIDGRAPH came along and you wouldn't learn necessarily because during the year you'd be reading lots of stuff you'd wait till the proceedings of the SIGGRAPH conference was printed as a bloody phone book and then you'd go through the papers and try and work out what was going on um or if you're lucky enough to go to the conference you know you'd go to the conference but it was like once a year you got an injection of kind of new and and then it moved to 
you know, well, we're publishing more frequently. And then it moved to, um, you know, that there's stuff coming online and, oh my God, we can read it. And, but there were still, we were still waiting for people. Now it's like pre-publishing research and, you know, the ability to get not just the written documents, but people explaining those in videos, examples, and just how much you can use whatever, be it search engines or a chat GDP or some kind of bot to find you those things because um, in the sort of fire hydrant of information that's coming out right now, it's actually pretty hard to know what I should be paying attention to and what I shouldn't. And there's the risk that if you are too general, you'll just literally drown in stuff. You'll never get to be um, understood. But by the same token, I think if you specialize too much, suddenly you can be completely, you wake up one morning and someone's got a complete end run around you with a whole different approach that you sort of didn't even see. It's a I guess I'm leading to a question of how do you stay current with what's going on? Are you relying on just having over a cup of coffee, checking out the internet? Are you relying on conferences? Like how are you keeping in touch? I mean, our, archive is a great resource. Um, archive.org uh, is a great resource. Uh, um, uh, I, I think I end up pulling on threads. Like I'll have an idea and I'll search for something. And, and that'll lead me that and then through that, I'll find a paper and then that, you know, I'll find an idea and then that will lead me down another rabbit hole. So I, I tend to do, I guess, specific research of specific ideas rather than trying to, to keep up with the fire hose because it is, it is amazing. And there, there's a couple of things that, that, uh, you know, I see a lot of papers that are very similar and they've just, they've changed some very minor thing, which yeah, is a little gap spotting. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be nice if I could f- figure a way to, to filter the papers and just show me the difference. Yeah. <laughs> and they, I, I don't need another of, incremental little, like we just solve this tiny little chunk here. I want like, yeah. Or what is the little chunk, right. Of the whole paper. Like what is right. the, based on the pre- previous code? Cause I, you know, chances are I might've, seen the previous work and already familiar with it and then i can just focus on whatever's new so there's that um uh yeah no i i uh, uh it's hard plus production where you know we're a small shop we've got we don't have um a lot of the projects we work on don't have a lot of budget so we don't have a lot of you know free time so we, we like most of our our effort is like how do we make it faster how do we make it uh, you know, more streamlined, um, and, uh, or provide it at a, at a better cost to the, you know, provide a better quality at a better cost to the, to the people that need it. Um, our goal is to make this, the veiling available to any production that needs it. And we're not quite there yet, but we've, you know, we've got some ideas <laughs> just working on getting the time. So, um, so yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to keep up. Um, you were talking about trying to stay current general with everything. I like the idea of a T-shaped sort of knowledge base where I'm sort of deep and then a, a, enough of an understanding of what else is going on so that if there is something exciting, I can have a look and, I will, and I'll understand it. I won't, you know, won't necessarily be able to reproduce it right away, but at least I'll understand what's going on and maybe roll the, use those ideas. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. The T-based uh, approach, having enough breadth that you sort of across stuff, but then drilling down on only those things that you think that uh, are worth drilling down on is the only way to kind of uh, fill in one's knowledge. Ryan, I'm going to 
thank you so much for for um, just talking to us today. We really appreciate it. As we're recording this, uh, it's the this weekend coming up that you'll be uh, turning up at the uh, Academy's Museum um, for the uh, Technical Achievement Awards, which um, is the first time it's been in person since 2019. So I assume you're turning up to get your uh, award and looking forward to uh, yeah. Friday night? A absolutely. Um, it's, and it's in the, the, the museum, you said. Um, it's, uh, so I'm, I'm very excited to be there. Uh, I, my mom's going to get to go, which is fantastic. Uh, Some time between 25 and 30 years ago, she said, when you win your Academy Award, I've got my dress picked out. <laughs> and I just, oh. you know, I, I never imagined I would actually get one. So it's it's pretty incredible to um, to 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 get the honor. Um, I really like the the work the academy does in, in creating a, a standard of excellence, um, and I think that that um, you know is is a driving factor in in those of us in the art of visual effects to to sort of achieve. Uh, achieve that standard to to do to do work that is uh, not just solving the problem, but also done in a, in a you know in a professional way. Yeah, I'm not going this year. I have been in the past, but uh, there I think there are 19 individual recipients this year, and in the eight awards are being handed out. But the thing I like about the Cytex is that there's no suspense, and no one has a bad night, right? Like no one turns up <laughs> and then goes home empty-handed because. Uh, so the the mood on the night is always so positive and so wonderful as uh, it celebrates uh, those that have already achieved and contributed as you have. So thank you so much on behalf of the industry and thank you so much on behalf of FX Guide for talking to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been fantastic. Thanks, guys, for that. And thank you, Ryan, for taking the time to share all that information with us. I really enjoyed the discussion and some of the rabbit holes and other things that you guys got into as part of that interview. And uh, of course, congratulations on your achievement and the award that you'll be receiving on Friday night. Well, that's it for this episode of the FX Podcast. For Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.